0: right we know this is st thomas's argument that god provided us with um, scripture with the prophets because salvation is a hard thing we can't get there on our own we need help so it's his effort to help us to show us things that we need to see in order to be saved otherwise he wouldn't do it so we know that that prophecy is a is God's way of helping us. And he speaks directly to the prophets, that when they speak, they're speaking the words that God wants them to speak. They're from him directly. You know that my argument is that the works that we're reading stand on this side of prophecy, on the worldly side. The other side is directly divine, it's from God. But some of these prophets seem to be so close to him that they have these intuitions that i argued are a tremendous help to us. They help us, they do what prophets do, they help us to see things about ourselves and our world that we don't see without them. Some of the people keep raising these questions, this is fiction, you know, and I keep trying to answer it. Yes it is, but the works that we're reading um, help us to see ourselves more clearly in greater depth and our world. So they, they help us by strengthening our faith, doing what reason can do to to show us things about ourselves and in a way that's compatible with our faith. Um, And it's important. I mean, um, Isaiah or um, Jeremiah, take any of the prophets from the Old Testament, Moses, um, they they all reveal God working in the world the wonderful thing about Dante and Shakespeare is they speak directly to our own culture so they can re- help us to see ourselves in our own setting concretely that's an amazing gift I think so my reason for doing this is, is to st- that we be strengthened in our faith by learning to use powers of reason to help move us in the world whatever we do with ourselves because faith and reason should come together so it I just I, I had to take some time on in the evening class I, I, I don't think I have to do it here because you're all old timers here. But just as a reminder, you know that none of this stuff is just literature for me, obviously, and I hope it isn't. I'm sure, it's not for you. That there's a great gift that um, these poets are giving us, and it's good to remember it sometimes. That's one. Uh, <coughs> just a quick review of one of the more important things that we talked about in looking at the Purgatorio, and even in Heaven. Um, I've argued that one of the effects of the fall is this dichotomy, this subject-object dichotomy in which we live so much of our lives. We tend to objectify people. That phrase from Dante, um, ladies who have the intelligence of love, that's a wonderful qualifier. What he's showing is that there's a certain kind of intelligence that, that's produced by being rooted in love. You know, it's very different from the kind of intelligence that we use when it's not rooted in love. And we all know that it's so easy for us to, to justify ourselves, to excuse ourselves, to blame other people, to be resentful, to be envious, proud. I mean, all the things we saw in purgatory. And that we use our reason to defend all that, cover it up, make it okay. Part of what's going on in purgatory is to get rid of those things in order for us to see again. Because the guiding light for us should be our intellects, to see. Dante makes very clear, one of the truths of the Paradiso, this is from Thomas, is that love follows sight. You'll make that clear in Thomas here. We can't love what we don't know. One of the reasons for scripture is God wants us to know him. The, The more we know him, the more we love him. The more we love him, the more we want to know more. The beatific vision is seeing God seeing him. So, the whole effort of this is to, or the purgatory was to to st- strip us of those sins so that we could recover our sight and begin to re-experience the wholeness that we would lost in purgatory, or I mean in Eden, right? The, there wasn't that dichotomy. A- Adam did not look at Eve as an object. He loved her the way God did. Eve didn't look at Adam one of the consequences of the fall is once that love was turned away from God, it turned towards ourselves. And in the interest of doing something for ourselves, the selfishness that's in us, we use other people. We objectify them. So that one of the things that's going on that, that's made apparent is that Dante's overcoming that, and as he does, he becomes more one with Virgil, and more so with Beatrice. There are all these phrases in which she already knows what he's thinking before he says it. Um, and we already know God knows before that happens, because he sees in, into us in ways others can't. So, as we move through these canticles, we're experiencing Dante recovering that wholeness, loving, so that he continues to be himself, but becomes one with others. Love is unitive. It's meant to bring us together. In the Church, it's to be one flesh. So. Um, those are some of the basic things that are moving us towards the Paradiso and they just get reinforced in the Paradiso. Um, (coughs) Now a couple of things we've talked about I need to underscore here because they're just so important. Um, I'm going in this. A couple of things. Maybe the most important thing to take away from the Paradiso is this, and I really want to underscore it for everybody here because I'm, I'm just amazed by it the, each time I go back. I haven't done this for 10 years, but it's, it's actually stunning me right now. Um, everything that goes on in the Paradiso, absolutely everything that goes on in the Paradiso is on the other side of sin, right? Both hell and heaven show final ends. It's what, is, it's what is, yeah? It, it will never be otherwise. It's what is. Hell and heaven. Purgatory is an in-between state, but you know that nobody's there who hasn't, doesn't want to be with God. So it's not that they don't have sins. They do have sins. They're like the people in hell. The difference is they want to be with God. So they're doing a penance. They're working to correct themselves, to make themselves virtuous and it, as, as, a, as, a, as a way of approaching God. You can call it the way of approach. The amazing thing about the Paradiso, truly amazing, um, is that all sins are away. So if the mode of knowing in the inferno is irony, remember Dante stands outside watching, the, the souls don't even know that they don't know. So we can't read a scene without seeing ironies. The mode of knowing of purgatory is wonder. Souls are recovering wonder. They're astonished. It's like they're regaining the simplicity of children. You know, their sins are getting out of the way. The mode of knowing of paradise is um, gratitude and joy. There's no pride. There's no the reason I'm bring one of the when we were doing Cuniza, remember that passage where Cuniza says, I forgive myself. I'll, I'll, Go back to it in a second. We did this, right? CUNY's of the level, yeah. She says, I forgive myself. One of the one of the uh, parishioners said he said he thought that sounded an awful lot like pride. (laughs) He saw it as an expression of pride. And it was a it was a good light for me going off because it it reminded me of one of the things I think we're meant to keep in mind when we read the Paradiso. We so often bring dark judgments to what we do in the way we see the world. Dante's going to speak to this directly in the campus we'll read today. We're, we're so used to seeing darkness. Or the, 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 the habit of the critical mind is to see a sin. We're not as ready to see goodness. And remember, I've, I've talked about this. One of the things that the souls in paradise make clear is that what was a weakness in the world, a deficiency, the carda, Remember in 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 um, endurance, Justin in justice, Cuniza uh, or yeah Cuniza in lust in that every every one everyone, every one of those weaknesses in heaven is a glory. We talked about that, I think. Yeah, we talk, because our habit is to think lust. Are you kidding me? I mean, our inclination is damn or. But what Dante's showing us is that. Each one of us, each one of us has a certain inclination. It's peculiar to us alone. I mean, even, even if two souls are Fouquets in, in the level of Venus, he was given a lust, like Tunisia, but in different ways. Each one of us has certain inclinations. Each one of us is more inclined to a certain kind of sin than another because the nature of us is different, right? But that, all that means is whatever, whatever that sin was, it involved a cross. Whatever struggles it took to answer it will lead to a glory. So what we see concerning each one of these weaknesses is not something to put down, to look down on as a sin. It's a glory. Each one of them is likened to a gem, a kind of light. Picard is likened to a pearl, the moon. thats the gem of the, of the sun. I mean, sorry, the moon. A certain kind of light. So you can't look at her and not see a beauty, a radiance. The same will be true at the level of justice with just t- in Mercury, you know, and the same thing will be true at Venus with um, Cuniz and Fouquet and Thomas, um, because at that point we're, in, we're entering into perfected virtues. But the point is, just like the Contrapasso in the Inferno and the Purgatorio, the, the, the value of the Contrapasso, remember, each level of hell, each level of Purgatory had a certain atmosphere it was symbolic of the nature of that sin. Am, am, am I? This is all familiar, right? I mean, you. So all the people in proud were carrying boulders; they were bowled over, bowed over. All the people in envious had their eyes wired shut, and they were against the walls; they could not see. They refused the good in life. And now they have to do without it. All the people at the level of wrathful were in smoke. Dante's giving us images um, outside as a way of showing, representing, what's inside of a spiritual. That's why I think he's like a doctor. He, 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 he can go from effects to causes, same way a doctor does. Here are your symptoms, this is what the problem must be. So if he does it in the spiritual order. So he's helping us to see the nature of sins according to our own nature. So we're learning to distinguish at every level. We did that in hell, we did it in purgatory, we're doing it here in the Paradiso. Okay. Um, so, one of the things is that uh, we're learning to see the glory. There, there, it, for somebody to say, that sounds awfully proud, is simply to misread what's going on in the Paradiso. Because all pride is gone. It's gone. There's no envy. There's no pride. Ricardo says, when Dante says, I can't remember, but when Dante says, aren't you sad that you're not higher up? And, and she says, no, the, the king, of, my will is according to the king of the universe. To, to go against his will would be wrong. I said that against Francisca, remember, because she says, if only the king of the universe were my friend. She blames God for her sin. So there's nothing going on in heaven that isn't in accord with God. It's a state of blessedness. So the mode of knowing, the mode of living in heaven is joy and gratitude. Forgiveness has been given, okay? The debt is paid. Hell's gone. Purgatory, the debt's been paid. It's gone. What Dante gives us is joy. Now, to underscore this, I mean, I just, this is sort of me. Anybody in this room right now, give me the title of a book in which the book doesn't develop over a conflict, that somebody has to deal with evil. Jane Austen, Dickens, you name it, you name it. The, the essence of stories in the world is good and evil going. There's a conflict. We, we want to keep reading to find out what happens. Who's written a book in which there's no conflict? Who would want to read a book like that? Put a movie on television. People would go to sleep. We, we, oh, this is stunning. We feed on conflict. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I, I mean, C.S. Lewis has said something like this in Chesterton. It's, it's almost hard for us to, to allow for a joy. We're so quick to find a fault. We feed on it. <coughs> Give me a book in which the whole action <coughs> is an expression of joy. Doesn't exist. Stop and think about that. Dante, here it is again. Dante has gone outside the universe. Remember, his reference point is always nature. He's always teaching us about our nature, what's here. But in the paradigms, he's... Continues to do that; he never leaves it. But he also stands outside. This is Plato's cave, outside, showing us something we don't know. It, it's final ends. This is the condition of joy with God. Pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable. The week here. The, how put it this? Way, how many of how many of us in our, can sustain a joy in our lives? I would say it doesn't get past two minutes for most of it, because two minutes in we're going to complain, we're going to find, we're going to, why should I have to do this, or stop doing that, or... Isn't that true? This is the only sustained experience I know of in my experience of literature rooted in joy, gratitude. There's nothing that's said there that isn't in joy, so when Kunisa says, I forgive myself, the last thing you can say about her is she's being proud. She's forgiven. There's a joy in what she's doing. To not see that means we're st- we've still got this dark film over our eyes that you know, that the whole poem has been trying to move us out of. Set that against Milton! Anyway, so here we are in the Paradiso. This is the condition of joy and gratitude, thankfulness for, that we're there. Okay. Um, Okay, so we've gone through the first couple of stages. We saw that in the, in the first third of the of the heaven, um, remember there, the image of the Trinity was obviously here. Dante's been dealing with um, deficiencies in virtue. so deficiencies in endurance, deficiencies in justice, deficiencies in um, yeah. temperance, temperance. And then when we get to Saint Thomas, we'll be at a level of prudence perfected, I think. And what we see is, and I want to come back next week when we get together, I'm going to, I want, in my review, I want to go back to each of these to go into them a little bit more. But um, actually, let me do one right now. What, what we're seeing, once again, remember, the Trinity is permeates this work. It's an inherent <laughs> structure. So this is the first third of the heaven, and we'll go into the next third. When we, when we pass out of the shadow of the moon, or the earth, sorry, the shadow of the earth. We're going from a kind of knowledge that's that's still um, earthbound in some ways, that whose reference point is earth, and we're moving to a kind of knowledge that's supersensible, beyond the senses. This is a knowledge still grounded in the senses. Senses. As we move into the sun and the the planets above, the kind of knowledge that we get will approach the knowledge of a mystic. It's supersensible. It's not as ground in the, um, the senses. Um, I'm going to just take one here to, to show you once again the importance of the contrapasso. Remember it's always there. In, at the level of the moon we're looking at souls who were weak in fortitude who are now showing a blessing, a glory. right? But the principle that we learn and we're going to learn a principle about our nature at every level Principle that we learn here, just to take one example, is the difference between conditional and absolute will. Okay? Now, I think everybody will probably understand that as an abstraction, but I want to try to make it concrete to show you just how good Dante is. Remember that the two women had made vows to God. They, They were to be brides of the groom. They entered orders. Christ was their groom both of them were forced to leave the orders by men. And the difference between them is that um, Picarda, I think, gave in more than Constance. Constance, even though she was forced to give in, never altered her will. And that's the distinction that Dante makes between a conditional will and an absolute. In Constance's case, even though she was forced to do something, her will was unwavering in its love of God. Now let me just try to make that clear, if I can, for a second. And I'd be glad for help for any examples that you guys. Um, Picarda's crime was that she gave in partly in her will, so her will was divided. Um, that's why he calls it a conditional will, I think. Um, oh, kind of. just—I don't feel safe anywhere here. Um, let's say, if I can, I'm glad for your help, Anywhere you got, let's say a husband want to have sex with his wife, okay, and the wife goes along grudgingly, okay, um, let's say there sh- should have been some reason she didn't, let's say for, I don't, I make up the circumstances but, of your own, but let's say she goes along grudgingly and there was some reason she shouldn't have. That means part of her is giving, giving in to something, or let's say, let's say it's before marriage, make that even better. Let's say it's before marriage, and the girl, the woman knows in her heart she doesn't want to do that, she wants to remain a virgin, let's say. And she gives in, even while she in her, in her will she wants to hold to her virginity, she, that is a principle that's important. So her will is more compromised than say, let's say there's another couple where they're really close, but the man forces her to have sex. So something in her does not consent to the will, even though she's forced to do it. Her will remains absolute. Now let me, is, is that okay? Let me try to make this a little bit more practical. Let's say that, um, let's say that the husband and wife are married and they're married now, so that is that. Um, and the two have been arguing about getting rid of the car. And the wife just hates this car and doesn't want it anymore. And the husband's gone one day and she sells it without talking with him. Okay? So she's forcing, she's putting the husband in a place that he wasn't, didn't want to do. He's going to have to suffer through that. I mean, let's say he blows up and sleeps upstairs for a week. I don't don't know. Whatever. Okay? But he's forced into a position that he should not have been forced into. So, it's not, men, it's not a man physically forcing him, it's a woman doing something that is inflicting her will on him, okay, because um, some religions encourage it, let's say the husband just passes on it, okay, that means he's giving his will into a bad that he should have opposed. So I so see that as a conditional, he's just giving in. Let's say another husband in the same situation does not is really angry and does something. I don't know, sleeps upstairs or whatever, you know, whatever let's go there. But his will remains firm in the good that he knows was lost. So what in doing this example that Dante's doing, it's not just an abstraction. Any more than the contrapasso with Francisco and Lust, where Francisco and Paolo were being blown about or or the souls on the level of the proud were carrying boulders. You know, we're Dante's revealing our nature to us. So with respect to this idea of endurance endurance, we've got two women, both of whom had committed themselves to an order. They made vows to God. They made vows to God. And they were broken. Men forced them. The question is, what do you do in circumstances like that? So He's, he's asking us to see that there's a real difference between a conditional will where you partly give in and an absolute will where you're forced to do something that you don't want to do, but you keep your will intact. I, bu- I, I don't want to go on to this. I believe there are some women who've been raped in the world who will not let that rape devastate their lives. They'll have the strength to come out of it because whatever happened, they did not consent to it. That's an example of an absolute will. Conditional will means, in some ways, gave in somewhere. So the distinction he's making, are, are, this is not an abstraction. We're not, we're not mentally... What he's doing is giving us a principle to understand so that we can make distinctions ourselves. And he's been doing that at every level. The lustful, the gluttonous, you know. You can go down the line in, in hell the level of the violence, fraud, at every one of the levels, in the level of fraud, he was making distinction. Doing the same thing in purgatory, he's still doing it now in the Paradiso. The difference is, in the Paradiso, we're in joy. Whatever the violence, whatever the wrongs, they're behind us. We are now in a state of joy, and Dante is still revealing truths to us. Let me stop now. Any, before we I want to go to the book to to get going forward. (laughs) Any. Nobody has questions about that? It's because I'm so clear. It's
1: pretty clear. Yeah?
0: Yeah. That's unusual for me. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Isn't that sort of amazing, though, what he's doing? Can anybody name a book in which there are no tensions, no conflicts?
1: Who? Yeah. Huh? Toddler books. Toddler. Toddler. <laughs> I know. That's why I
0: don't read them. Good night, the <laughs> There's this movie that I love. It's called Man From Nowhere. You, you guys probably don't want to watch it. It's, it's just, it goes along with that movie that we you know, had for the dinner night. It's a Japanese movie or a Korean movie. I love it. It's, it's, it's got some of the most violent scenes I've ever seen in, uh, in films. But there's such a goodness to what this man does to deal with his violent. Um, it's the kind of movie I want to read around Easter time. <laughs> um, you know, when we think about our God going to a cross and the violence of it um, and answering it. One last thing before we, this phrase that I've introduced, Bonum est diffusivum sui, sui, goodness is diffusive of itself. This is one of the reasons Dante could write. I want everybody to hear this. This is one of these passing things that you can just overlook, but once you see it, it's amazing. Goodness is diffusive of itself. If you're paying attention to the Paradiso, you know that Dante, in one way or another, is constantly talks about the goodness behind all things. It's present. Picarda says that. Cunizia says it. Everybody says it. They, 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 they're, they're enveloped, surrounded, infused with goodness. It's everywhere. God, The principle of the form, you know, working down to the planets, down to humans. He does it again and again and again, almost in every canto. This goodness is at work in the world. Manichaeism is a flawed philosophy in this sense. Manichaeism believed that there are these two eternal forces, good and bad, spirit and body. They looked at the body as evil. Um, it makes no sense if you think about it. If if good and evil are co eternal, one spirit, one's body, there's no reason not to choose evil if you're gonna you know, they're not they belong to contradictory orders. Christianity maintains that evil is a privation. There's a, God, God's good. There's only goodness in existence. There's no evil. There's nothing outside of him. Evil is a turning away and a losing something of him, a privation. It, it's a lessening of power. To turn from the source means you take away, you, you give up in your rebellion. In your rebellion. Can, in your rebellion. I mean, put it this way. Can any of the angels, if evils is a privation, ever defeat God? Can anything ever defeat him? Nothing ever will. It should be a cause of great hope for us. Evil cannot overcome God. As you keep hearing this wisdom. Evil will only end up destroying itself. It's Boethius's great argument. He'll make rational sense of it. Evil will only undo itself. It can't help but do that because it's a privation. Aristotle saw this. Shakespeare, Dante saw it better. Um, Aristotle knew that every tragedy end ended with a, a, an anagnorisis and a peripatia, a reversal. that whatever the blindness, the fault of the epic hero, it was corrected. Even Oedipus pulls out his eyes. It's a devastating, horrifying scene, but w- my reading, I would assume it would be, I mean most, lots of people won't see it this way. He's more beautiful at the end with blood dripping out of his eyes than any other time because he sees. He sees himself. Before he didn't, he was blind. That's why he ripped out his eyes. So there's a paradox of grotesque beauty to that moment, just like Christ on the cross. Evil can only undo itself. God can never lose. He's being itself. All things are from him. To maintain that evil is a positive is to misunderstand the nature. That's why every great work of art, even if it's tragic, ends in a good. Lear, Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello, every tragic hero sees his wrong. If, If you take that away, what you've got is melodrama. The pain just goes on. That's why I hate melodramas. I mean, all they do is indulge the emotions. You go on in self-pity and anger and, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Remember, the two emotions that can arrest us? Aristotle, pity and fear. The most dangerous emotions. Because they can paralyze us. We get stuck in them. I've been talking about this forever, how enabling pity is. Every tragedy involves a catharsis that purges us of those two feelings. Right? So, why does this book end in a comedy? Why is it called a comedy, even though hell seems tragic? And, and um, how is it that a tragic action in hell, if we can put it, I, I won't even look at it, is absorbed into a comic action, that it ends, it's a comedy? Because Dante knows only good can survive. Only good will survive. Evil can never defeat good, it will always undo itself. That's true of every great tragedy. Every great tragedy. Every great work of art, Dostoevsky, Faulkner, you name him, Jane Austen. So the action of the whole Commedia is from a refusal of God, turning away from Him, to a wanting to be with Him, to finally being with Him, in joy. And there's nothing that goes on in the Perdiso that isn't expressive of good it can't end any other way. Dante knows that as a, just philosophically, it can't end any other way. Evil will never survive itself. It can't. Okay, any, any questions before we go on? I'm good. Good. Tell me through Is Izzy. I want to know not kidding.
1: Whoa. <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you know I only do
0: that. And I'm speaking truth here because I love that man.
1: <laughs> mm. I do.
0: I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be married, too. Eh? <laughs> Let's go. Let's but turn to 4, 443. Um, First 4, thing, I think it's 440. Yeah, 441. Just a couple of things, quickly here. Um. Some of the parishioners had trouble with this notion that I was suggesting that Dante's amazing in the sense that he shows us what was a weakness in the world, a sin, that's now a glory. And one of the reasons, I I think one of the reasons I wanted to take time with it then, and I'm going back and picking up here, is is partly this. My own belief, I, I don't think I'm wrong here, maybe it doesn't apply to some of you, but I think most of us, when we commit sins, we can get so scrupulous about them that we beat ourselves up. We hang on to them. So when a priest says to us, "Forgive yourself," or you know, or, "You're already forgiven," you know, it's hard for us because in our pride we hate sinning. I, mean, we, I think maybe I'm speaking too much for myself here, but particularly if there's anything in you that's self-reliant, you know, if if you think, you know, I'm a good basketball player, I can do these things really well, and then you have to deal with your own sins and realize you can't deal with them at all, um, that it's so hard to give them up. In our pride, I think we want to get rid of them now. You know, if I had my way out, I don't, <laughs> I have to learn to be patient. One of the hard lessons for me in life is, is learning to come here it's like forgiving yourself or having a mercy, and I, I'm assuming that's not easy for some of us, I don't know, but. We tend to be very critical of ourselves and put ourselves down. And I think it's something we bring to others. The, the beauty of this is that, remember, I think this went to your question last week. Remember, for, for, a, for a Calvinist, certainly for most, for most Protestants, because remember, Luther, Wycliffe, all of them began with a belief that man was depraved. He had no free will. Um, they start with a dark view of things. The, the Catholic believes that God made nothing bad. We saw this in Virgil. The source of all sins is love. It's a good. That's our beginnings. We make it bad because we love the wrong things. And remember this. Don't forget this scheme. In Purgatory, remember it was divided into three: the um, the lower half, sloth, and then the upper half or the upper third. Love is behind all of them. What was loved here was the evil and every one of them had to do with persons. The love of an evil to another person. Pride means wanting to be above somebody. Envy means wanting somebody to lose something. Wrath means wanting to hurt somebody because they've hurt you. Every one of those loves involves another person and we want an evil to come to them. But the origins of it is love. We've got to Straighten out our loves. Love's not bad. God made nothing bad. That's radically different from a Protestant who says, you're depraved. So the loves here are love of evil, and they all involve persons. The loves here are goods of the world. You can say persons are good. We bring into evil into the world by, by a disordered love. So persons here, goods here. Love of, love of things, love of food, love of sex right? Gluttony, or sorry, avarice, gluttony, lust. right? Mm-hmm. So love's behind them all. The hardest thing to see here is that Dante's showing us a weakness that's not something we can condemn anymore. It's a glory. Because the loves have been ordered. Now people love in a way that's in accord with God. And... Um, I, th- I hope that was a, an important point for everybody. Um Doug, do you want to give your example of the child?
1: I think you've gone over it really thoroughly, Robert.
0: We did it on the Monday it was an evening. You
1: just No, give, but I don't just um, I think you've covered it. Um, if you think of um, lust being a sin of um, loving things about the body so pleasures that you can have for your body um, and that's and that's a sin and we have to go to
0: or it's a good when you start
1: as an adult it's a sin you go to purgatory and work it off um, and thinking about Kinesa, um who was given to a lot of lust um, you can see the sin involved in it but if you go back to, I was trying to think of an example of how something that was seen in an adult as lust, what was the origin and was that a sin? And the only thing I could come up with was a child who, you know, a young child, this age or younger, who loves the ocean and playing in the water and the sand between her toes and um, the sun and the wind and all of the stuff that goes to being at the beach and she just loved all of that sensual, there's no lust as we understand the sin in that, Um, but it's the same, it's the same love, it's the same going, inclination, the same going out to that sensation. Um, And so it seems to me that you can then see that when Keniza gets to heaven that same inclination can be a glory because there's no more sin to it. It's the same as the innocence of a child.
0: Yeah. Um, remember in the middle of the Purgatorio, which was so, it's the very center of the Commedia, we talked about this, that uh, Virgil has those discourses on love and free will. And if you go back to those, cent- those central cantos, You remember that was the description of the soul when God first creates it. It's meant to desire and love, and it goes out in the world. If it's not curbed properly, if if it's not helped to become virtuous, those desires, if they're not curbed, can wreak havoc. I mean, they just get. um, And we've learned here in the Paradiso. um, We've learned it elsewhere too. But in the chapter with Martel, um, with um, Justinian that it's so important for us to acknowledge we've got a nature and to work with it. So if you're a parent and you've got six kids, it's really crucial that you learn to see the differences in their nature so you can work with them. Imagine a, a guy, a father, who's got three sons, and he was a former NBA, NBA basketball He wants his sons to be basketball player. Whether that's inclined in them or not, that's what they'll grow up, and the question will be, what will happen? And they may grow up fine, but we, Will what they're doing finally at some point be in tune with who they are and what they are, what their inclinations, what their gifts? For parents to see those in an age in which it's believed that we don't have a nature, how much help do parents have in doing anything today? It's um, 440, 441. Notice this. Also, here. But now the light within that holy light was turned to face once more the sun that fills it. As to the good sufficient for all things. We can't read a canto without coming across some reference to the good. All souls deceived devoid of piety who turn their hearts away from the true good raised your haughty heads towards empty things. And then another of those radiant lights drew near to me. Its eagerness to please was shining through the splendor of its glow. so. Here, here it is, this is level of Venus. She wants to please. That's a natural inclination, or like, like the child that, that Doc duck is describing. 441. We're at the light of that still unknown soul out of its depth from which it's sang, now answered like one whose joy is giving joyously. She wants to give. Here's this love of pleasure. Is everybody following? so this is, it's like the winds and the level of lustful every sphere has its own contrapositive is not the right word because, but it lines up with contrapositive contrapositive means against the sin, you can see it the same way this is the nature of the soul, at this level are those who were inclined, inclined its eagerness to please, at the top, whose joy is giving, and then we get these words Um, Cuniza appears, rises a hill of no great height from which some years ago there plunged a flaming torch, that was her brother, who laid waste all the countryside around. He was passionate too, but directed to violence. Both he and I were born from the same root, here's this inheritance, Cuniza was my name and I shine here for I was overcome by this star's light, but gladly I myself forgive in me what caused my fate, it grieves me not at all. You know, we've talked about those, when Dante and Virgil reach paradise. when when your will becomes good, nobody has to open the door for you. Your will will want to do that. That I mean, it's natural for her to be here. I myself forgive in me. And and notice that reflexive, this in-othering, mean, that's so characteristic of everybody in, in in the Paradiso. But gladly I forgive in me what caused my fate, it grieves me not at all. Which might seem strange indeed to earthly mind, because our habit is to see a fault. If we're seeing, we're not reading this well, because there are no faults here. There are no bad, there's nothing that isn't in joy. Um.
1: I have a question. Go ahead. So, if that's true, then why do we call it deficiencies? In the first
0: three. Because it was.
1: But it isn't. So no, shouldn't no. the emphasis be on the strength and not the weakness? That's been bothering me yeah.
0: since we got there. Uh, all, all I can say, Sue, is that it was, it, I mean, it's Dante's way, here, here hold, hold one, here, 406. Remember, Picarda said, when Dante says, wouldn't she be happier if she were higher up? Remember, there's no envy here. The, the point is, everybody's happy, but but each in accord to its own nature, its own merit, what it what it did. Each soul is perfect in happiness, but I I don't know how to describe it, describe it except as a degree of happiness. They're all perfectly happy, she said. The order of our rank from height to height throughout this realm is pleasing to his realm and to a king who wills us to do it. Remember, one of the things that characterizes God is is variety. One of the signs of perfection is this great variety. It's there in everything, in creation, in plant life, in the kinds of plants and animals. It's there in human beings. We're all made in his image and we're all different. In um, the order... The order of a rank from height to height throughout the realm is pleasing to that realm is to the king who wills us to his will. His will is our peace. They are one with God. That's Picard. Cunisa says, I forgive myself. Um, Sue, so I'm, I'm, I, th- I think the, um, the point here is that um, I, th- I think it's the notion of equality that we bring in our world to think that all people are equal. Which I think is bad. I I think is badly. I believe that it's badly misunderstood. All of us are not equal. Um, if if I were to stand next to St. Thomas with his gifts of mine, his gifts would far outshine mine. Um, if one basketball player were to stand next to another a violinist or a cellist, we all have different gifts. Um, all of us in heaven will attain a perfection in accord with those gifts and what we did with them. So there won't be The notion of equality is is a static abstraction. We're all different, Um, and what we're experiencing here is that variety and different degrees of perfection. So, there's no deficiency. That's why I tried to stress the fact that when you look at Picard or any of them, what you see is a glory. You can't (laughs) fault it, there's no fault. Um, What they're doing is, is making us aware of distinctions the way Dante did in the Purgatorio and the Paradiso. Everybody's happy, perfectly happy. They're in joy, they're in gratitude, each in his own way, according to his own perfection. Or they wouldn't be here. they wouldn't be here. Each of them images Christ. There's a great variety of souls, just as there are in this room, um, in, in any setting we find ourselves in. Um, some people are better celloists, some people are better violinists, some people are you know whatever the. Um, whatever the gifts of any of us is, they differ. So, um, that's good to know, right? Hmm? That's that's good to know. Right? Yeah. Why? Well, it so is. I can still make it to heaven, and I don't have to be exactly like St. Thomas. Is. Right. Exactly. Because that's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And even though you put it that way, I mean that, you know there's a human... Exactly. That um, each one of us is different. We have to get envy out of the way. I mean, there can't be these comparisons that we make what he's doing is showing us our nature, but there's no occasion here for criticism. She's in joy. That's why I've tried to spend so much time in this. If we don't read this with sharing in her joy and gratitude, I don't think we're reading it well. We're in joy right now. That's the mode of knowing. Um, And and one of the reasons is because we've overcome, we've overcome this dichotomy, to stand outside of something. Everybody here has entered into everybody else in love In truth, the debt's been paid. Justice is answered. They're in a forgiven state, each each according to his character, his gifts, his inclinations. They're all perfectly happy. Top of 443. God can see all, and your sight sees in Him. Remember, that's that. That's reflect in Him in in seeing Himself. God can see all, and your sight sees in Him. It's in-Heming itself. (laughs) Does everybody hear that? It's in-Heming. It's God's light working in Him. How can it not be if you're in God's presence and the dichotomies are overcome? There won't be anything that isn't indwelling. Your voice, then, which eternally charms heaven in harmony with those adoring flames that make themselves account of their six wings, why does it leave my longing unfulfilled? Dante's trying to learn. I would not wait for you to ask of me were I to in you as you now in me. They're sharing, in-othering. in, in othering. And then Fouquet goes on, on page 445. The third soul arrives, it's Rahab. Um, you remember who she is. Have we done this?
1: Yep.
0: You all remember who Rahab is? Yep. She's the whore, the, the prostitute that led Joshua and the people into the Promised Land. One of the pressures had a problem with this. This is the third soul to arrive with Venus and Fouquet. I mean, sorry, um, Cuniza and Fouquet here in the level of Venus. To so this sphere where the shadow of your earth comes to an end, here it is. Because when the sun, when the... Um, earth is interposed between the sun and other planets. The shadow only goes so far. So here within the shadow of the earth, we're still oriented by our senses. Okay? Um, to this sphere where the shadow of the earth comes to an end, she was the first to rise. Rahab is a prostitute, and one of the prisoners was shocked because she wasn't Christian. Remember, when Christ harrowed hell, do you understand the traditional understanding when he herod, herod, um, herod hell, all of the patriarchs. There was no there was no Christianity then. Right. were are freed. So here's Dante showing us that, that salvation doesn't always depend on what happened. I mean, we'll see this later, too. But here's God's love. The woman who gave her life for the deliverance of God's people, for the establishment, the founding of God's nation, his people. For it was Rahab made possible Joshua's first glory in the Holy Land, which seems to matter little to the Pope. This is one of the condemnations of the Pope again. The The, the criticism of the church only get greater in the Paradise. Constantly the, the Heavenly Order is going to blush with embarrassment because of the corruptions of the church. And Boniface at the center. He's, he's attacking Boniface because he, his argument is that Boniface was more concerned with his own wealth and corruption than protecting the the Christian lands and the Holy Land, the, the, the properties and sites that should have been protected. Your city, which was planted by the one, the first to turn against his maker's power, and whose fierce envy brought the world to such woe, creates and circulates the wicked flower that turns the shepherds, priests, into ravening wolves, and breaks the fold and lets the lambs run wild. Who is that, Who is that one? your city which was planted by the one the first to turn against his maker's power who is that one? God. Your city Florence, I was talking to Dante, which was planted by the one the first to turn against his maker's power whose fierce envy brought the world to such woe. Who is that? The maker. It's Satan. Who, according to Dante, Who's the founder of Florence? His own city. Some he's of you are not, looking puzzled. Are you he's all not public? the maker, huh? I thought you asked us who the maker was. No, sorry, no, sorry. Okay, I may have just um, the the by, by the way, Milton is Dante are pretty close on this. Um, the argument that Dante is making is that it was the creation of Adam and Eve that led Satan to rebel against God. I'm not sure that's completely orthodox but what he's saying here is that the the one who founded Florence which is the first member, the first commercial city is Lucifer. That's what Dante thinks of our commercial republic.
1: So when I read it I thought your city was Eden. Um,
0: No because no it's Florence. He's talking to Dante. And, and you know, which was, the, which was planted by the one, the first to turn against his maker's power. That's Satan. The first one to turn from God was Satan. And the cause of that, or the effect of that is creates and circulates the wicked flower that turns the shepherds into ravening wool. That is, it tempts the priest to become more concerned with worldly goods. He's just, he's scathing the corruptions in the church right here. And breaks the fold and lets the lambs run wild. The shepherds should be looking after the lambs. Us. What are they doing? They're corrupt themselves. What's happening to us? We're becoming corrupt. This is pretty, this is, I mean, it doesn't stop. The condemnation just runs. The gospel and the fathers, the 446, the gospel and the fathers of the church lie gathering dust, and canon law alone is studied as the margins testify. They're only studying scripture in order to apply the laws to benefit themselves. The Pope and Cardinals heed nothing else. Their thoughts do not go out to Nazareth. They should be trying to defend the Holy Land. They're too corrupt. They're too wealthy and soft. You know that when Pope or Francis became Pope, that one of his first concerns was to try to clean up the wealth of the church. It's been one of his overriding missions. But Vatican and every sacred place in Rome, which marked the burial ground of saints, who fought in Peter's army to the death shall soon be free of this adultery. Why is this term appropriate at this level? Because we're at the level of Venus. It's lust. It's an appropriate word to end this canto. Is everybody following? He he just, I mean, he's so, he's just so masterful as an artist in what he does. Um, They rise to the level of the sun, and look on page 448, and I was in the sun no more aware of my ascent than one who can be aware of how a thought will come before it comes. She it is Beatrice guides our climb from good to better instantaneously, her action has no measurement in time. This is amazing. If we're reading this literally, I, I, I think it just cannot but amaze. We know that the first thing that happened when they left the earthly paradise was that they were trans, he was transhumanized. We've seen that he enters into a body, even though he's got a body. So when he entered the body of the Son, body and body were merging. And I think I talked about that. How did Christ get into the upper room? Didn't I ask that question? He doesn't open the door and close it behind. What's, what? And, and we know that his body's real because he said to Thomas, put your finger... So something, think about the transhumanized body that, that is in heaven. Because the, the rules of physics and biology and as we know them in this world don't apply in the same way anymore. Dante's relating us to everything in nature but taking us to a point beyond. We're seeing everything from the side of when the fall is gone, the effects of the fall are over. We're in paradise. He rises from Venus to the sun faster than he could without even knowing. So he's he's here and there. It's like Eliot's, here and there, gone. Done. He's in the sun and not burning up. And we just can't overlook these things. He's in the sun. And if you read Dante, you know that at every level, like in the level of the moon, it's a a pearl-like light. But the souls stand out. So even though they're pearl-like, they're brighter. Why? Because, this is St. Thomas, the human soul is worth more than the entire physical material universe. So, there's no susceptibility to the to material causes as we know them in this world. He's entered the sun he's not burned to a crisp. he's talking like it's he's comfortable in his own living room um, I mean, if we imagine what's going on here, it's pretty he's Dante's asking us to slip material causes to see that we've entered the order of the mystic that that kind of union with God. St. Thomas comes to him and introduces all the souls and he says on 450, I was one of the sacred flock of lambs led by St. Dominic along the road where all may fatten if they do not stray. Now hold on to that. There are two things in Thomas's introductions here that that affect Dante. he was of that fold of St. Dominant along the road where all may fatten if they do not stray. 451, he's introducing all the souls. At the bottom of 450, he says, The fifth light, the most beautiful of all, breathes from a love so passionate that men still hungered down on earth to know his fate. That's Solomon.
1: Um,
0: Sorry? Yeah. Bottom oh, of, f- of 450? Now, hold on to that. He's the most beautiful, of, remember, there's this garland of souls dancing around. There's a, this is a light show. There's nothing that goes on in, in heaven that isn't poetic, that isn't poetry, that isn't dance, that isn't light. And here in this circle is Solomon. Top of 451. His flame contains that lofty mind instilled with wisdom so profound, if truth speak truth, there never arose a second which such vision. He's claiming Solomon was the wisest man in the world. There was no other. Um, He goes on to introduce them, wrapped in the vision of all good, rejoices the sainted soul who makes most manifest the world's deceit to one who reads him well. That's Boethius. He's saying if you read Boethius, he's the one who most unmasks the deceit, the deceptiveness of the world. That's what we're going to, well, we'll have to read to find out. Do you agree with them or not? Um, on page 454, um, um, Thomas gives this wonderful laud. It's a praise of St. Francis. What's happening here in the center of, almost the center of the Paradiso is this exchange between the two orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. St. Thomas is now praising St. Francis, who was the founder, you know. So at the center of this paradise, the Paradiso, are these two figures responsible for the two greatest reforms (coughs) of the church at times of corruption, St. Francis and Dominic. He says on page 454, The providence that governs all the world with wisdom so profound none of his creatures can ever hope to see it in its depths, in order that the bride of that sweet groom, who crying loud espoused her with his blood, might go to her beloved, made more secure within herself, that is the church, more faithful to her spouse, ordained two noble princes to assist her on either side, each serving as a guide. It's like a chariot with two wheels. One of the two shone with seraphic love. The other, through his wisdom, was on earth a splendor of cherubic radiance. The seraphic love, the the highest order of angels, um, is of love. The lower one, um, his wisdom, was on earth a splendor of cherubic radiance. That's Dominic. It's the knowledge of love. So two very different orders of angels are represented, two or two different orders of inspiration are represented in those two men. He says on page 455: only a few years after he had risen did his invigorating powers begin to penetrate the earth with a new strength. While still a youth, he braved his father's wrath, he refused his inheritance because he loved a lady to whom all would bar their door as if to death itself. He accepted something that would have been death to everybody else. Before the bishop's court, he took this lady as his wife. Now, he, he, he describes what, in effect, is a romance, a courtship between Francis and his beloved. Do you all know what his beloved... What? Poverty. Poverty, good for you. It's, it's wonderful, because at the end of the story that Thomas is telling, we, we learn that what he loved most of all was poverty, because it was way of being one with Christ, to so refuse all worldly goods... And think about the importance of that for answering the church's corruptions. 457, Then a bare rock between Arno and the Tiber he took upon himself, Christ's holy wounds, and for two years he wore this final seal. He had the stigmata. I mean, I, God, what, the honor or privilege of sharing the cross with Christ. You know, that he had him. He, he, He so renounced the world, he so gave up everything, that he, his 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 identification with Christ was complete. The signs of the stigmata right will show that. Now, 458, well here, 457 is back. Think now what kind of man were fit to be his fellow helmsman on St. Peter's boat, keeping it straight on course in the high sea, and such a steersman was our patriarch and those who follow his command will set the richness of the cargo in their hold. But his own flock is growing greedy, now for richer food, and in their hunger search, they stray to alien alien pastures carelessly. Remember what he said before, um, that line. Where all may fatten if they do not stray. Dante asks him, what did you mean by that? Um, And he makes clear that... So long as they stay on the course of their founder, they will enrich him. But when they stray, they'll get fat in another way. Um, the farther off his sheep go wandering from him in all directions, the less milk they bring back when they come back to the full. I, I want everybody to say, by the way, this is one of Lincoln's great addresses, Abraham Lincoln, I think it's the, it's either the temperance address or the lyceum address. And what he makes clear is, Um, it's much harder for those who follow a founder, in some ways, than the founder, because our pride always makes us want to go off and do something on our own. But to conform to a reform that's in place, so you can see, requires an extraordinary humility. Because our inclination is always in pride to want to go off on our own. So this thing about not strain, Is not, this is a pretty serious critique of the order because the order is becoming corrupt. Dante wants to know what he meant about the other, this, um, this fifth light, 460, now from the Franciscans. Now remember, here, hold on, here's the two um, garlands. One is dominus, the, which means God's dogs, If you read it, you remember that his mother had this vision of a flame burning the earth, that Dominic was going to come and set fire. Remember Christ's image of the confirmation that he fired up the church at a time when it needed reforming. So you had Dominic's the head of the Dominicans, Saint Francis comes out to speak for him. Francis is the head of the Franciscans and Boniface comes out to speak for him. So you've got servants speaking for their orders. And what we see is this wonderful exchange of gratitude and courtesy. It's graciousness. There is nothing in heaven that's not gracious. Here it is again. You've got one order expressing their gratitude and praise for the other. So Boniface steps forward, 460, he sent his bride to champions who through their words and deeds helped reunite the scattered company. On 461, we get the description of Dominic, just like we got St. Thomas's description of Francis, yeah? Um, now, I'm gonna s- stop here, page 467. Remember that Dante's second question is what, what Thomas meant when he said, um, this is back on page, or er, uh, in Canto 10 on line 114, page 451 His flame contains the lofty mind instilled with wisdom, so profound if truth speaks. Truth, there never arose a second with such wisdom. Nobody equaled Solomon in his wisdom. Do you guys remember Milton's attitude towards Solomon? This is really important. You all remember. I remember pointing it out to you at the time. It wouldn't have I meant anything because Milton's attitude towards Sol- Solomon is scorn. He hated him. Milton and his thousand, or I mean, sorry, Solomon and his thousand wives. There's a, an implicit contempt of the body, so there's no other way to look at Solomon as somebody who's just absolutely <clears throat> taken up with the body. On page 467. The hush of that concordant group of souls was broken by that light from which had poured the wondrous glory of God's proper saints. saint, St. Thomas comes forward again. Now that one sheaf has been threshed, it is explained to Dante what he meant when he said, made his comment about fattening those who stray. The first sheaf has been threshed and all its grain is garnered, he realized it. God's sweet love invites me now to thresh the other. Dante's second question. Into that breast you think from which was drawn the rib that was to form the lovely face whose palate was to cost mankind so dear, and into that one who pierced by the lance gave satisfaction for future and past such that it outweighed all of man's guilt. The first he's talking about Adam because God made Adam directly and God made Christ directly because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So those are the only two souls that were made directly by God. Everybody else was a product of generation. So this is St. Thomas doing what St. Thomas does. He's making these really important distinctions, right? Into that breast, you think, from which was drawn the rib, Adam. and into that one who pierced the land, who was pierced by the lands. As much of as much of wisdom's radiance as is given to human nature was infused by him whose power created their humanity, were directly created by God. So you must have been surprised to hear what I said earlier of our fifth light, that he possessed a wisdom without equal. Open your eyes and you'll see why. All that which dies and all that cannot die reflect the radiance of that idea, or that good, which God the Father through his love beget. Adam was made directly by God, so it was... I wish I had to... Does anybody have the Magnificat? God, never, um, or it's not, it was... It was never, it was another book, sorry. Um, the living light, which from its radiant source streams forth its light, but never parts from it, nor from the love which triunites with them, that is, the Father and the Holy Spirit, here's the Trinity, um, its light, but never parts from it, nor from the love which triunites with them, of its own grace sends down its rays, as if reflected through the nine subsistencies remaining sempiternally itself. Goodness is diffusive of itself, it passes on to everything. Then it descends into the last potencies from act to act, becoming so diminished it brings forth brief contingencies. It's the contingent world as we know it. By this term I mean things generated, things which the moving heavens produce from seed or not from seed. Um, Going over 4.69. If the wax were perfectly disposed, and if the heavens were all their highest power, the brilliance of the seal would shine full but nature never can transmit this light in its full force much like the artisan who knows his craft but has a trembling hand nature receives God's work perfectly that's part of the reason for our variety and difference in gifts they shouldn't be a co- sometimes I watch there's a kid I see often you know at the, at the rec there are some people who are out, uh, what's the autistic. Huh?
1: autistic
0: yeah autistic kids you know they um, My belief, I said this to Father, grace, perfects nature. Whatever our deficiencies, whatever that kid's deficiencies, they won't be present in heaven. But all of us are gifted differently. Some more than others, some with different gifts, and, and that's what he's saying right now, that nature never can transmit it. It's so uneven in what it does. We're different. It's not a reason for envy or pride. It should make us love this variety more. But if the fervent love moves the clear vision of the first power and makes of that its seal, the thing it stamps is perfect in all ways. St. Thomas was particularly gifted. What he did for the church was extraordinary. This is how the dust of earth was once made fit to form the perfect living being and how the virgin came to be with child. And so you see how right you are to think that human nature never has been since nor ever will be such as those two. Um, to clearly understand what seems unclear, consider who he was in his request that time God sent him. Ask what you will. I think this was in a dream to Solomon. Um, God came to Solomon in a dream and said, ask what you will. My words were meant to bring back to your mind the fact that he was a king and asked his Lord for wisdom to suffice a worthy king. He did not ask to know so that he might counter angels, that is, that he knew abstractions, added this extraordinary, like Raphael in, in Milton, or Adam, rather, because he was getting this knowledge from an angel. Or to know whether necessae, with a conditional premise, yields necessae, that is, a probability will produce a, um, an infallible conclusion, nor sius dere primum motum esse, nor if without right angles, triangles, that is, he didn't want geom- geometric knowledge, Solomon did not ask for a wisdom that made him greater than human, like an angel. He didn't ask for perfect geometric knowledge. He didn't ask for a knowledge to benefit himself. He wanted prudence as a king so he could serve his people better. So when I talked of unmatched wisdom then, <coughs> royal prudence was the wisdom upon which I had my arrow of intention drawn. If you, if you recall the word I used, arose, it should be clear that only kings were meant of which there were a full many but few good at Solomon stood out by his wisdom. And this is biblical. I'm, I'm going to bring it. I should have brought the book. I forgot. I, in Kings, it's in Kings. This is scriptural. That describes Solomon as the wisest man who ever lived. So here at the center of, almost the center of the Perdiso, is this um, celebration of these two orders that brought these great reforms, And at the center of them is this man, who is the most beautiful of all, who radiates. And I'm assuming, because (laughs) I'm subject to mm, glad to hear disagreement, because of his love of the body. Now Milton had nothing but scorn for that. I I, actually said something that actually was can use it, but you know he had. A Thousand Wives, if I could only have that kind of wisdom (laughs) What was funny on Monday night, I said something like that and looked over it. Doc gave me this, so when I looked, the whole class looked, what she saw in her face was this, everybody knew I was going to have to get a ride home that night. (laughs) Anyway, I I think what Dante's doing here in the center of the Divine Comedy, in this action of the Paradise, in which we're approaching a mystical union is this glorification of the human body. Otherwise, I don't understand why he would make this importance, give Solomon this importance. But think about the difference between Milton's treatment of Solomon. I mean, he's very explicit, he hates Solomon. And here in the Bible, according to the Bible, God says, the wisest man ever to have lived. And and St. Thomas is making the distinction. There's a big difference between Adam and Christ and all the other men. Solomon was a king. I mean, he's saying that he was better in other kings then. And, and you know that so- Solomon did went on to do some things that were not good. So, from this point on, just as one last word, Dante is going to um, rise into the next level. It Here, let me have your attention. It's at this point he's going to meet his great-great-great-grandfather, Cacciaguida. Those of you who have done the Aeneid will enjoy this. You remember the Aeneas went from year to year to year to year to year, trying to found the city. And we know, this is extraordinary. I mean, it just, it shakes me thinking about, it. he's trying to find this, found this, this eternal, you know that the roots of it were Homer, the city that will not die, and the cities that's gonna be universal because everybody will be welcome there, not Greeks, not Romans, not Turks, everybody. It will transcend those ethnic, those prejudices, whatever, by bringing everybody together And you know the cost of bringing that city together were wars, because to found it, you had to overcome the racial divisions which were killing people off, keeping people separate. So the great theme of the Aeneid is the founding of this city in which all people were meant to come together. Aeneas is going on and on and on, failing year after year after year, founding after founding, until he finally comes to uh, um, Rome, to Italy, sorry, Italy, and it's there that he goes into the underworld and he meets with his father and Anchises, and it's Anchises who gives him his calling. Those of you who are who did the Aeneid will remember that scene and how important it is, because it's it's at that point that Aeneas has no doubts about what he's meant to do. Because all along he's been following the gods. And he and he keeps thinking he's doing it, and he fails, keeps thinking. We talked about that. That it's the part of what's going on in the in the Aeneid is it's like the first literary treatment of a calling. You think you got it, you turn the corner, it's gone. You go another block, you turn the corner, and you think you're there, and it's gone. We think we understand. We keep failing. we don't we don't fully see it. And then finally, he goes into the underworld, the afterlife, and he gets his calling. Da- so um Dante's there. He's, going, this is now, he's been getting hints of his calling all along. He's been getting <laughs> hints of prophecies of what's going to happen with the Gelfs and the Givlings. Every other chapter has got some prophecy. When he goes into the next level, um, he will meet with his great-great-great-grandfather, Kachiguita, and it's there that he will be given his calling. And interesting, for those of you who've done the four quartets, it's at that point, m- watch what's happening. He's going back to his great-great-great-grandfather, and from there, he's going to go on to Adam. He's going back to beginnings. In my begin, God, in my, be- this is Elliot, in my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. Dante's going back to beginnings. So the next third of the, the Paradiso will be Dante's moving closer to his origins. His great-great-grandfather, Adam, all in preparation for seeing Christ. So that's where we'll go after Easter. Any qu- <laughs> Sorry, any questions? Sorry, any questions? <laughs>